Here are four readings from the prophet Habakkuk. For each one, I will pro provide a lead-in description. On behalf of God's people, Habakkuk complains to God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you? Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. God's answer creates another problem altogether. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Habakkuk again questions God. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained, ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then? Do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, Wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The word of the Lord. In Robert Browning's verse drama titled, Pippa Passes, we hear these lines of innocent bucolic bliss. The years at the spring and days at the morn, mornings at seven and the hillsides dew-pearled, the larks on the wing, the snails on the horn, on the thorn, pardon me, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. We may have felt such euphoria in isolated moments of wonder and enjoyment, but life takes a turn and we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. Daily news is a barrage of sadness and suffering, and this week was no different. Reports of neighboring wildfires, 900 or more children and youth sexually abused by 300 pedophile priests over a span of 70 years in Pennsylvania, and church officials covered it up. A bridge collapsed in northern Italy, resulting in the loss of 38 lives and counting. And a father who claimed his two elementary-aged daughters and wife had been abducted has now been arrested and charged with their murders. 
it's probably more accurate and true to life to say all is not right with the world. Unfortunately, it's not all far removed either. Tragedy cuts through our own lives with unexpected illness or accident that sends us reeling and alters our sense of place in the world and our sense of God in our lives. That was the experience of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, however you choose to say it. He and his people suffer injustice at the hands of evil oppressors. And he tries to make sense of what's happening through prayer and dialogue with God. In much the same way philosophers and theologians have done for centuries, this prophet more than two and a half millennia ago asked some hard questions. If God is good, how does he allow suffering of innocent and vulnerable people? And if God is powerful, then why does he not overrule the evil and reverse the fortunes of its victims? Eugene Peterson describes what makes this particular prophetic work distinct. He says, most prophets, most of the time, speak God's word to us. They are preachers calling us to listen to God's words of judgment and salvation, confrontation and comfort. They face us with God as he is, not as we imagine him to be. Most prophets are in your face assertive, not given to tact or diplomacy. They insist that we pay attention to God. But Habakkuk speaks our word to God. He gives voice to our bewilderment, articulates our puzzled attempts to make sense of things, and faces God with his and our disappointment of God. He insists that God pay attention to us, and with a prophet's characteristic, no-nonsense bluntness. There's only one word in all three chapters of this book that even gives us a hint of what might be going on, when it happened, and what was happening at the time. What's its historical context in order to best understand its message? And that word is the Babylonians. In the Hebrew text, it's written as Chaldeans. And that in itself has led some to think it might have been a different Hebrew word and therefore refer a different time. It may not be the Babylonian Empire and the time perhaps of Jehoiakim or Manasseh um, um, in, in, in Judah's um, succession of kings. They were known for being morally bankrupt and therefore the nation was suffering because of their, um, of their particular leadership. And because the Chaldeans could be translated and interpreted differently, there's about five different views of when this happened. It could have been that time frame. It could also have been the time of the Greeks after Alexander the Great had conquered, um, had gone east and died, and then generals returned and controlled the territories surrounding Israel and Judah. It could also refer to the time of the Romans. So they, scholars place it in all kinds of places. 
not just the seventh century. One question you have to ask is Habakkuk's opening complaint of evils a result of oppressors within his own nation, therefore the rulers of, of Judah at the time, or is it from outside the nation? Are his cries for help related to internal or external troubles? Well, regardless of the source of trouble or the historical context, Habakkuk's questions are universal, similar to the ones we ask of God as well. When in trouble we say, why God? Why? How long must I endure this injustice? What purpose does my suffering serve? We want answers when that happens to us. There's a great deal wrong with our world today, but what makes it even worse is the thought that God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And as people of faith, how do we explain God's silence and inactivity? God, when God does answer Habakkuk, it, it's not comforting. He's even more troubled by the answer. God says he will use the notorious military might of the Babylonians to execute judgment on God's people. This offends Habakkuk. How, would a, how could God possibly use a godless nation to punish a godly one? Nothing about this makes sense, and he's bold to say so. He registers yet another complaint. Why does a God of right allow the rule of wrong? And how long will the wicked thrive and prevail over the righteous? Well, here we go. We're in the minor prophets, and you want to have a little more optimistic view. In fact, someone after my sermon came up to me and said, you know, there's a book out that says the world's not as bad as we think. I said, yes, there is. <laughs> but what Habakkuk is teaching us is what does it mean to have faith in the face of grave difficulty? And that's what we're looking at. That's the text. And at some point in our lives, that's going to happen to us. And I want to remind us of three things that I draw from this text. The first is that it's wrong of us to expect that once we put faith in God, we somehow become exempt from danger, misfortune, or cruelty. You, we don't get to carry a card in our wallets that says, oh, I, I'm exempt, I'm free. I don't need to go through this. Such perplexities of life befall believer and non-believer alike. And God doesn't promise some quid pro quo protection in exchange for our allegiance. Nor do we get preferential treatment. You know, there's the time where the young man comes to Jesus to ask a question and he begins by addressing him, good teacher. And before he can even get his question out, Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me good? And then he says this most beloved thing that we quote all the time, right? There's no one good but God. 
Do you believe that? That's how the Bible presents who we are. So instead of asking, why do bad things happen to good people? What if we ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Us included. That's what we ought to expect if that's the view of who we are. But that's not how we see it. Remember, Jesus says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And the word rain in biblical terms is always a blessing. It means life. It's life-giving. It's, it's, it's what's most needed in an arid climate, in a desert-like conditions. Rain is such a huge blessing. God's blessing is on all. Living by faith, we must be reminded, is an adventure, and sometimes the adventure is bewildering. Rarely do we know what's coming, and seldom do things turn out the way we want or anticipate. But faith is learning to trust God no matter what. It's living a life that says, this is the one in whom I believe and whom I put my trust. The second observation from this passage and from others like it is that it's okay to question God. Go ahead. Register your complaint. Make your God accusation. It, God can handle it, and Scripture encourages it. To have doubts about what God is doing or not doing, there's nothing wrong with that. It takes honest and serious faith to express such puzzled complaints when life is not as it's supposed to be or what we want it to be. But serious faith also demands that we have the humility and the courage to offer such objections in prayer and in dialogue and then wait for the answer. Wait for God to respond. Not to turn our backs on God or put distance between God and us that's not faith, but faith hangs in there to say, I don't understand you, nevertheless, I trust you. The technical word for this problem Habakkuk and others address is called theodicy. It has to do with the questions of evil. Where did evil come from? Why does it exist? And why has it not been dealt with? And if it has been dealt with, in what, in what way? We find it in the book of Job, and it's a common theme in Psalms, namely Psalm 37, 49, and 73. And the emphasis of these passages, as well as this book that we're the text of today, is that we learn how to trust the purposes of God despite the perplexities we experience and the confusing perceptions that we have of what God may or may not be doing at the time. In other words, that we don't expect God to act like us or to, or to yield to our demands, but that we learn to trust in the midst of it. I'll remind us that as, as Christians, we view all suffering in light of the cross, that cross is central to our worship, not just because it's symbolic of something that happened a long time ago, but it, 
it addresses evil every day of our lives. That knowing God in Jesus entered our world in order to put an end to the power of evil and to set things right, even things that we didn't think were wrong, including us. And all the suffering that results from the presence of such evil. Remember, even Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His suffering and death, though, is not the end of the story. God turns the worst that we humans could possibly do and makes good of it. And that is God's nature. That is God's, um, that is God's story. The third and final observation is this, that those who seem to be in control, who have power and are corrupt and arrogant in their use of it, God says they're puffed up and they rely on themselves and therefore are not upright. By comparison, the righteous shall live by faith or by faithfulness, the text says. In essence, what it's saying is by their steadfast trust in God, not in themselves, in God. And Habakkuk models for us a person of such faith. While he questions God and expresses disappointment in God, he nevertheless waits, listens, and prays. Living by faith doesn't mean living with our eyes closed or denying that our troubles even exist, it means that even though we're hemmed in by them, that we're overwhelmed by them, we try to see it from God's perspective and how he uses them not only to shape our lives, but to bless us through such troubles. As much as Habakkuk doubts God's actions, he does not, he never denies God's sovereignty. He never denies that God's in control or that God's present or that God cares. All may not be right with the world, but faith believes the one who can make it right and, and does make it right. So much so that Habakkuk says something Browning-like at this point. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Remember, he's the one doing all the talking. And he's now saying, okay, God, I'll be quiet. That's Job's response too, remember? Job kept saying, I want God to answer me. And he just keeps waiting and waiting. All of his comforters come along and they say, well, here's the answer. And he goes, no, I don't want your answer. I want God to speak. And when God does speak, Job goes, okay, shut my mouth. Because uh, God says, who are you? Were you present when I did thus and so? Do you even understand what's going on in the world? Do you even see it from my point of view? Do you have the character and the integrity to act consistently for good? Do you know how to bring life? 
Just as the judgment God pronounced was slow in coming, but nevertheless certain, God's promise of relief and restoration was something God's people could be certain of, but nevertheless have to wait for. See, that's the hard part. I like the little saying that someone received and put on their desk. God grant me patience, but hurry. <laughs> so certain is Habakkuk of God's merciful intention that he doesn't end his message with the same anguished cry he began it with, but with a song in his heart. You get to the end, and these are the closing verses of chapter 3. And I'm going to use Eugene Peterson's message to update it for us. Though the cherry trees don't blossom and the strawberries don't ripen, though the apples are worm-eaten and the wheat fields stunted, though the sheep pens are sheepless and the cattle barns empty, I'm singing joyful praise to God. I'm turning cartwheels of joy to my Savior God. Counting on God's rule to prevail, I take heart and gain strength. I run like a deer. I feel like I'm king of the mountain. Nothing's changed. It's still, he's still in the throes of injustice, but he sees the possibility of God acting and the certainty that God will overrule what he's experienced. It's reminiscent, or it echoes, uh, Paul later echoes a similar refrain in Romans 5. We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate, passionate patience in us and how passionate patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. Habakkuk came to realize that the believing in God life, the steady trusting, the steadfast trusting God is the only way to live. And only as we wait and continue to put our trust in God do we see how God works everything for good. That's what happens in, when we recite and pray the Lord's Prayer. We're praying those very words that, that the world may not be as, it, as we want it to be or as God intends it to be, but may your will rule just as it is in heaven, may it be so on earth. And that beautiful hymn that we sing, this is my father's world, and though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is ruler yet, God's sovereign. And Christ who died shall be satisfied. The world will be put to right by him. It already has. It's just, it's unfolding and complete realization that we're waiting for. May we have passionate patience and steadfast faith in our waiting. Amen. Well, this isn't the best text to have chosen on the day you're going to ordain deacons and elders. It implies that serving in a role like that can be nothing but suffering. Um, 
it, it doesn't mean that necessarily, but just in case, um, we're going to um, we're going to pray over them that that the whole role isn't just that. So I invite uh, newly elected elders and deacons, if you would come up at this time, and stand up here on the chancel, uh, the top chancel steps. And as they're coming, let me explain this: that we elect. There's three different offices. There's the office of ministry.